Hey everybody, welcome to the Intermind Podcast with your host, Shereen Wilson, Intermind Specialist and Health Expert. This is a podcast dedicated to discussing topics around the mind and the body, talking about all things regarding success, entrepreneurship, health and love and relationships, sharing stories, insights, new perspectives and tools on how you can get out of your head and start creating the life you want today because success is easy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Inner Mind Podcast. I am so excited today to have, an, well, he's been on here before. I shouldn't say another guest. He is a re- repeat guest, and I'm really excited because we've had so many rave reviews from hearing him on my podcast. His name is Owen Fitzpatrick, and he is a globe-trotting speaker, international bestseller, author, and special so sorry social psychologist who has spoken to audiences in 30 different countries. He's one of the world's leading authorities on influence, storytelling, social psychology, and has worked with billionaires, Fortune 100 companies, and Olympic athletes. Owen is the author of eight books and is well known for his TED Talk poem, Mind Control, which has been viewed more than 1.3 million times. Owen has spoken on thousands of stages and has a career an over 25-year career in this specialty, an avid research in social psychology and an expert in understanding NLP. And I am so happy to have you again here. Oh, and thank you again for your time. Yeah, great, great conversations that we've been having. Um, I'm going to just jump right into it. Unless there's anything you wanted to say, I should even let you say hi. It's it's just I really enjoyed the last session, Shireen. And uh, it was a really fun interview, so I, I'm delighted to chat with you again. I, I think we, we always tend to, to touch on fun topics, so I'm really, um, it's a pl- yeah. privilege to be with you again. Yeah, I'm excited where, where it's going to head today. Um, as we were just speaking before you, we hopped on here is, you know, you had recommended in the last podcast to, re- to read that book, um, Seven and a Half Lessons on the Brain. And uh, by, Le- is it Lisa Bartlett? Bartnett? Lisa Velma Merritt. There, there we go. Lisa, Doctor, what's her last name? Uh, Barrett. So it's Barrett, Lisa that's right. Feldman Barrett. Yeah. Feldman Barrett. And uh, anyways, I was just saying that I had went ahead and I read the book in the last couple of weeks, and uh, we were just talking about the model of you know what basically the book is about is is kind of letting go the old model of that you have this two-part brain or the three-part brain in some in some models that it's very much uh you know you have your your limbic brain and your reptilian brain or your lizard brain and then you have the emotional side and you have the logical side and so we were just touching on that and I kind of wanted you to go ahead oh and just jump right into it and just share a little bit about her model that she's been researching and what you've also looked into versus kind of the old Plato's model, which um, we were just discussing. So no, go no, ahead, take the no floor. I will do. Thanks very much, Shereen. So, so just to give everyone a background. So typically speaking, when we talk about the brain, um, we talk about emotions, the way in which we feel in the brain, we generally speaking have been working or operating for most of the last 50, 100 years or so. Um, through what we call a triune brain model, right? 
And um, this is really that we've got like three brains that evolved one on top of each other. So initially we have the sort of the instinctive brain, right? The sometimes called the lizard brain. This is the, the brain stem and the cerebellum and right in the very, you know, center, you know, sort of the, the south of the brain. Um, and that's responsible for our instincts. And then on top of that, uh, we evolved a sort of an emotional brain, which is known as the limbic system which is areas like what we call the amygdala, which is known to be connected with fear. Um, and that's to do with our emotional side and stuff like that. And that's also known as sort of the monkey brain or, you know, the, uh, the, the animal brain. Um, and then we, or the old brain. And then we also have the final one, which is known as the new brain or, you know, the human brain or the prefrontal cortex. Um, you know, this is sort of the, seen as sort of the, 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 the frontal part of our brain, the frontal lobe, where a lot of, they say, decision-making and logical evaluation happens. And it's known as the logical brain as well. So the notion is, is that as human beings, we evolved the logical brain after the emotional brain. Therefore, sometimes the emotional brain can hijack the logical brain, and therefore it can distort the way in which we think. And this model really functions in a very intuitive way. It feels right. Um, it feels like sometimes that our emotions dictate our logic. But this theory has gone back many years before that to Plato, where he talked about, you know, two different horses. And uh, the idea is we're pulled in different directions and it's up to us to be able to get those horses under control um, and, you know, representing the different sort of aspects of our brain. What's really important for us is to be able to understand um, that, you know, in, in terms of uh, Professor Barrett's work, it turns out that's not actually how the brain works or how emotions are made or created. She's written a couple of books, uh, one that we mentioned, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, and another one earlier, much more academic version, which is how emotions are made. But in a very simple, uh, you know, I suppose in a nutshell, the, what, what Professor Barrett talks about is the brain works and creates emotions based on prediction. And so emotions are constructed. So in a nutshell, this is how it works. First and foremost, our brain's job is not to feel or think. Our jo brain's job is to survive. And to do so, our brain operates and predicts what's going to happen. So our brain is a prediction machine, and it looks to predict what's going to happen next. In order to do so, if you think about it, your brain is in like a black box inside your head. So it just takes on information. It, your brain can't see. It goes through, it connects with, you know, uh, your, your eyes. And even though your eyes are technically a part of the brain uh, protruding out of your body, it, your brain is in a black box and therefore takes information in from the rest of the body through a process known as interoception. So it literally figures out how's your body feeling? How's your stomach feeling? How's your legs feeling? How's your feet feeling? How's your head feeling? You know, what, what kind of stuff is going on there? And then it also figures out what's going on on the outside, exteroception, through your senses. So what you see, what you hear, what you feel, what you taste, what you smell. And so your information comes in from the senses, in through interoception, and your brain is now trying to make sense of that, right? And the question it's asking is, what's going on? And so the other thing that it has available to it is memories. Now, memories aren't snapshots of exactly what happened. Memories are things that we reconstruct. We fire off different signals in our brain to reconstruct those memories to the best of our ability. So our memories are not as reliable as we think they are. So we're recreating these memories. We have certain concepts. These are uh, ideas that we've learned. And we put together those memories and concepts and use them to try to figure out, based upon what we're sensing externally and based upon what we're sensing internally, what's going on. 
And as a result of that, our body will then feel a certain emotion, right? That we will label then because we're again using our concepts to label our emotions and also determine the action we're going to take. So just to remember it easier, you know, we have motion, which is the action we might take outside of our body. We engage in some motion. But emotion is also an action that has taken place inside of our body. It's constructing this feeling inside. And so what, what Professor Barrett also talks about is the fact that our brain is doing this, you know, creating the emotion and whatnot to be able to regulate what she calls the body budget. And so the body budget is our brain is constantly trying to regulate the body system, make sure it stays in a good sense of balance. And it's constantly trying to balance all the different nutrients, you know, from the glucose in our blood, the oxygen, all the way through it. Our brain's constantly trying to make sure our body is functioning accordingly. And so when something negative happens, then it knocks the body budget you know, out, of, out of whack. So therefore, it's almost like we've got a deficit in our body budget, which means we feel bad. So if you're suffering or struggling with anxiety or depression, then your body budget's in a constant sort of deficit for that time. And she said, when we feel good and optimized and energized, uh, she says, we've got a surplus in the body budget. You know, we've got lots, you know, we've got lots of available energy and our brains are regulating everything wonderfully. And so the key is that all of these great techniques that we once thought worked because, you know, they help the emotional brain become stronger, the logical brain or the logical brain become stronger than the emotional brain and control and all that sort of jazz. What we always thought necessarily the same techniques or strategies can often work, but they don't work because of why we think they work. They work usually because what we're doing is we're figuring out to take uh, to, to do certain things that change the way in which our um, our body budget functions. So we're, uh, for example, one of the things Professor Barrett says is the, the best thing that can happen to your nervous system is another human being. And the worst thing that can happen to your nervous system is a, another human being. And so people tend to affect their body budgets. It's like when you uh, spend time with somebody and at the end of it, you're like, oh, geez, I'm, I'm absolutely drained from that person. The reason you are is because they're affecting your body budget. And other people, you meet them and you're like high after meeting them. You're all excited. It's because once again, your body budget's affected by meeting them. Your body budget's affected by all the stressful events, all the negative things, all the media, social media, you know, looking at TikTok videos, looking at Instagram, seeing all the holidays you're not on, all the money you haven't got, all the reasons you have to feel bad about yourself. And vice versa, whenever you're setting goals, you're activating, you know, um, imagining positive things, which in turn, uh, you know, offer a, a chance for you to increase uh, the surplus in your body budget. So you're constantly, whenever you feel good, your body budget is doing quite well. Whenever you're feeling bad, it, do, it, it isn't. And the primary takeaway from this is our bodies and, and brain can't really be, you know, taken away from each other. Whatever is good for our body can also be good for our brain. Whatever is bad for our brain can also be bad for our body. You know, and anyone who suffers with stomach issues, whenever they get stressed, will, will reflect this. You know, um, uh, sometimes people get like particularly tense around their neck whenever they're like there's all sorts of physical ramifications of stress, all sorts of physical ramica ramifications of depression and anxiety and all that sort of stuff. And vice versa, whenever you're feeling, you know, sick or you've got a problem like that, it can be easier for you to actually you know, feel bad emotionally. One other thing I wanted to mention is that oftentimes it's also the interpretation that we make, the concept we use to describe what we're feeling that can determine how much we feel of that. So for instance, 
Um, I think I think it was I think it was Lisa uh, I think it was uh, Professor Barrett that that gave this example. But it's like, um, let's imagine you're depressed and you're feeling pretty shitty, right? Um, and you know that you're feeling shitty, and you think you're feeling shitty because of your life, right? Or because of who you are, or the myriad of different things we we use to explain that. Well, um, there was an example I think of someone she knew that was was depressed, but then was sick. And when she was sick, she actually became happier because all the similar kind of symptoms that she felt when she was sick, now she had a reason to label those emotions. So she said, the reason I feel so bad is not because of my life or because of my world or because of this or because of that. It's actually because I'm sick. I've got the flu or whatever it is. So what I'm trying to say is, is that we tend to uh, notice what's going on in our body and our brain does its best to figure out what does this mean? And as a result, oftentimes we can label it with uh, emotions uh, or in this case, moods, right? Disorders, which then in turn uh, sort of uh, propagate more potential for us to stay long term in those negative states. In other words, the beliefs we have about what we're feeling can often impact and, and make more likely that we stay in those emotions or we're, we're victims of those kind of uh, concepts that we have inside our head. So the beliefs that we form can also affect and we can uh, appraise or interpret whatever's going on. And that also means we can interpret in a better way. So a lot of great therapies works based upon a reappraisal, which is taking the same experiences you're having, but finding a new meaning for it. And this works all the way to the, the great work of Viktor Frankl. Right at his work at his Man's Search for Meaning, where he, you know logotherapy was the therapy that he came up with, and Viktor Frankl, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, great book Man's Search for Meaning, where he chronicles his life in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Uh, well, it was actually in, in Auschwitz, where he watched the most horrific things, but he was able to remain positive, and he was asked, "How do you do it?" And he said, "They could take away all freedoms except for one: a person's own ability to choose their own attitude in any given set of circumstances." And so he came up with this therapy after the war called logotherapy, which is ascribing meaning to suffering and how by finding meaning in your experiences, it can transform your life. A lot of therapies really work in, in some variation of that. It's how do you find a new meaning to the experiences you've had? And in many ways, that's what we do inside our head all the time. So this reappraisal works at a neurological level because we use new concepts to describe the same bodily experiences or the same sensory experiences, which in turn changes the emotions that we feel and in turn empowers us. So I'm sorry if I got a bit technical in there, but hopefully no. I'm still uh, getting I'm still keeping things. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying, because it, it, a lot of light bulbs went off for me when I was reading this book, when she's talking about um, it really it's like this giant feedback system right that's going on in and, and it's just constantly recalibrating and trying to predict and it's gathering information and I love I, I don't know where she said it I have so many notes from her book but basically how it it's it wants to learn the lesson and so that it can redirect it right and I know you know NLP and timeline therapy and a number of different therapies I know you know that um that is a, the premise of a lot of therapies is when we're stuck in a, a pathway or a pattern or a thought, a lot of the times these therapies are going, what is the feedback, right? What is, what is the lesson I need to learn? What is recalibrate? How do we recalibrate on a conscious level so that we can, you know, see it differently so that I can change the pattern, right? And she, she touched on that because the brain actually does that. 
It actually is like constantly gathering information and going, how can, because it wants to be better for next time. It wants to be more prepared and it wants to be more predictable for next time. So yeah, I, mean, I think if you, if you look at like, if you look at NLP, for example, one of the things that um, Dr. Richard Bandler, I've been lucky enough to, to, um, to co-author a number of books with one of the co-creators of NLP. And one of the things that uh, Richard says is he talks about going first, as in, you know, whenever you're uh, working with people, it's important for you to feel the way you need to feel in that moment. And he also says, like, state is so important. Get your state right, your emotional state, in other words. And there's lots of techniques in NLP to be able to do that. But I mean, that really, you know, uh, the, 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 the work from Dr. Barrett sort of explains why this is so valuable and important. Yeah. Because when you shift your emotional state, when you shift the emotions you're feeling, those feelings in turn will impact the experiences that you're you're conceptualizing about there. And, and if you look at it, that's what a lot of the you know promising drugs, there's promising drug studies from you know to deal with things like depression, with like uh, ketamine and, and and MDMA, right, or ecstasy um, or Molly, uh, depending on where you where you get it. Not that I'm recommending any of that, by the way. I don't recommend ketamine or ecstasy or whatever. But I'm just saying there's promising drug styles under very sort of controlled conditions, whereby, um, once again, the question is, how does that help? How does that help something like depression? Well, if you experience um, your brain, if your brain experiences a massively different emotion when dealing with the same shit that it normally deals with, it's going to see things differently, right? Because if, if, if you think about it like this, when you watch a movie, you're not just watching what's going on on the, uh, on the, on the thing. If, imagine you're walking, a, a person walking down the street, right? You interpret that in whatever way you interpret it. But if we play really sad music when that person walks down the street, if we alter the camera angle or alter the camera look so it's darker, so it's a little bit more black and white, it's a little bit grayer. Put and some you rain see that in there. Walk, if, yeah, if you put some rain in there, if you make it like that, all of a sudden before you know it, the exact same walk in the exact same place transforms into they're depressed. They must, they, you know, they must be going through a tough time. Now, on the other hand, you take the same walk, you put like, you know, Pharrell's happy in the background, you have, uh, you know, much more color, you have brightness, you have beauty around them all of a sudden they're really happy. So based upon these like subtle shifts or sometimes not so subtle, that affects our perception of what's going on, right? So when you feel differently uh, in, and, and you're thinking about the same things uh, as you normally do, you interpret them differently. You think about them in a radically different way. You see things that you wouldn't have seen before. And that's an important um, point to know about it. And that's why, regardless of what challenges we're feeling, I think I mentioned to you last time that if you write down how you feel about your relationship when you're in a shitty mood and you guys have just had a fight, if you write down how you feel about relationship when you've just proposed and the two of you are, fucking, you know, in each other's pocket, and when you write down, you know, about your relationship when things are going fine, you're going to have three different narratives. And those three different narratives with the exact same relationship with even, even let's say, notwithstanding the engagement, because you could have had a big fight right after the engagement. You know, anyone who's in relationships will know from one day to the next, sometimes, especially in the first few years, everything's hunky-dory. And then all of a sudden, you know, are we going to be together tomorrow? You know, and then to, everything's great. And then every like that can still happen. 
And so based upon that, oftentimes it's the feeling we have that dictates what we see. So we interpret the experience based on our feelings. And that's what we need to know. So many times people have come up to me, like, let's say, for example, if I'm down, friends of mine, uh, if I'm struggling with depression at a certain moment, and they'll go, um, what are you depressed about? And, you know, it, it doesn't like everything could be perfect. I, you could literally win the lottery. Look at Robin Williams. Look how great a life he had. Right. It doesn't matter how great your life is because it's never that you're depressed about something. I'm not saying events can't, you know, impact you and, and then lead you astray and make you feel a certain way, which in turn gets it. But when you're depressed, it's that your world is different. And that's what I try to get the people to understand is that you build a different reality when you're in that mode, when you're anxious and going through massive anxiety about your work or about your relationship or about your future or about COVID. You're not thinking negatively. You're not depressed or anxious because of the world. You're seeing the world differently. You're thinking about the world differently. You're living in a different reality in your mind. And so what therapies, great therapies when they're doing well, and there's a, you know, a lot of different types of therapies that work very well. But what they do is, they, there's a few different ways to do it. One way is they get you to reappraise or change the way in which uh, the story you're telling yourself about what you're going through. So you transform uh, how you see the same event, right? You recognize that actually it's different than the way you thought it is. Second type is that they get you to feel a strong enough feeling that is so different to the one you normally have. So with NLP, we might build a really powerful state of like, let's say we're talking about anxiety, we might build a powerful state of confidence and strength, like you can do this and you're going to be amazing. Um, and then we will get you to imagine the same situation where you're anxious, but with this new feeling of confidence and I've got this, it changes the way in which you think about that same event, right? Um, and, and then there's also things like mindfulness, which is really about tuning yourself so that you distance yourself from that and you kind of observe the insecurities and the worries and the, and the feelings of anxiety. So you separate yourself from it so they don't become as powerful. So they're just some examples of the kinds of things that we do that tend to help us and different things work for different people. Um, but, but it's important to recognize just like, you know, whenever we're trying to help people with depression, not all depression is created equal. Some people are depressed. If we look at it neurochemically, some people are depressed because of, you know, an imbalance with regards to serotonin. Some it's to do with dopamine and some it's to do with noradrenaline. So some depressions are more, let's say, you know, like slumberish, I can't be about to do anything, uh, you know, and, and, and that kind of mood. Some have a lack of motivation, which is a little bit different. It's not just a lack of energy, it's more a lack of motivation. And then some, they've no problem with motivation, but they just feel discontent. They just feel unhappy. They've got no purpose or meaning in life. They just see things in a negative frame of mind. So we have to recognize that this is all based upon our brains experiencing the world, trying to figure out what the hell to do and interpreting it and creating these constructs mm. or cons using these concepts to try to figure out what goes on. That was amazing, everything you just said. And I want to go back because you touched on so many good points. Um, one is you were talking about, uh, let me go to my notes here. You were talking about the prediction going back with, with how we see the world and wanted to know a little bit how does trauma fit in there and 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 then we'll go more into the relationship stuff because I, I know my audience is going to want to know, uh, you know, the predicting of relationships and how you view uh, that stuff. But wanted to go into the trauma part of this because is is 
you know, and hypervigilance and anxiety and stuff, because in the book, she talks about, you know, very much our brain is to predict. And she mentions the guy that um, who's in the, the jungle. Can't remember. He, he fought in the war and he's in the jungle and he's ready to shoot gorillas. And he, in his mind, pictures, uh, you know, a, a gorilla coming at a gorilla fighter coming at him. So he pulls his gun out and he's ready to pull the trigger. And then his friend behind him goes, what are you doing? That's a little boy holding a stick. Right. And so it made me think like, you know, we make up these situations and realities in our head and some people you talk to and everything is just, you know, catastrophe and everything is scary and everything is anxious out there. And I'm thinking to myself when I was listening and reading this book, is this because we're, the brain is just over predicting every scenario is it like because it's meant to do that. But like, how does that fit in when when we're talking PTSD, when we're talking trauma, when we're talking catastrophizing, just anxiety in general? How does that fit into this predicting mechanism that she's describing the brain is doing? So 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 basically the way it works, or at least, you know, my my way of seeing it or my way of thinking about it, the way it works is when you experience a trauma. Now, by the way. You know, people nowadays, sometimes everything's a trauma. You know, I'm traumatized because they don't have vanilla uh, ice cream anymore in my favorite ice cream shop. You know, I'm trauma. Like sometimes we'll throw around these things. But actual real trauma is the stuff that when we experience it, it, it's something that uh, largely impacts our ability to function after that. Right. So when we experience, let's say, PTSD, um, that's a description of what happens after we've been in traumatic incidents that have lasted for a certain period of time. So it's not just that you've experienced one traumatic incident, it's that it lasts for a while. And what happens is your brain tries to survive. So it predicts what's going to happen. And sometimes what happens is you experience something that is terrifying. And that could be terrifying because your life is in danger because you're at the war or terrifying because you're getting abused by somebody or you're being threatened by someone or you've been shot or an infinite array of terrible tragedies have happened. So when that happens, your brain needs to make sure that it protects you and make sure that you're ready for that in the future. And so it gives you a massive amount of, let's say, for example, from a neurological point of view, a massive amount of chemicals like adrenaline and cortisol that pour into your body whenever something you know uh, traumatic happens. And that makes it so much more easy for you to be able to remember that event in the future. But it makes it so much more likely to make it so that you remember in the future that as you move forward in your life, that it's very easy for all sorts of things that were present in that situation to trigger or remind you of something. So let's say, for example, your um, there's a there's a um, silver linings playbook, which is uh, a movie starring Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. And in it, there's I'm not going to spoil it. It's a great movie. But in it, um, there's a song that uh, sometimes plays and Bradley Cooper, who is out of a, a mental hospital, you know, trying to get his life back together. That song, as soon as he hears it, he starts losing it. And, uh, you know, it's, it seems to be like a Hollywood thing uh, or in NLP, we call it, oh, that's an anchor. But really what you're looking at, and it is to a degree an anchor for sure. But um, what we're looking at there is let's imagine something traumatic happens to me, right? And let's imagine while that traumatic thing happens to me, there's a number of things that are happening in that environment, right? So for instance, let's say um, uh, I'm walking along the street 
and then I'm bundled into a car. And I'm bundled into a car, and then I'm dragged to some warehouse by a gang of people, and then they waterboard me, right? And they, it's a mistaken identity, as you're saying. They waterboard me. And as they waterboard me, as they take me out of the water, my eyes open, I'm like, oh, I can't breathe. And then I see a watch, right? Let's say a Rolex watch. And then I go back in the water. Now, logically, as I move on from there, I know that the Rolex watch is nothing to do with the, what happened. I know that I'm not under threat from a Rolex watch. But because of the intensity of what my body was going through, the brain will identify and associate all things it can, all connections it can. Even the figure of a person holding a stick, right? Which could be the shape of a person with a, with a, with a, a, you know, a gun, right? a rifle. And based upon that then, I can immediately have a physical reaction to that, which then brings the entire thing back. So in other words, you have so many associations with this traumatic memory, which is associated with your body going crazy. And then when any of those associations are there, sometimes that can trigger your body going crazy in a totally different context. And when your body goes crazy, it also brings you back to remembering that same event yeah. in the exact same way um, for that. And so what they've learned to do in terms of, you know, trauma therapies and stuff like that. And again, you know, a large part of it is helping people to change the interpretation that they made for that experience. So when they go over that experience, there's two core ways. You, you go over the experience and the, the idea is as you go over it, it gets to the point that the, the experience itself no longer holds the same emotional charge. So with traumas, you try to get the person to, you know, one, one approach is to get the person to go over the trauma over and over again. And, it, you know, if, if we're doing an NLP, one of the things we do is we either create a really strong feeling of like, you know, I've got this strength or confidence or composure or calmness or whatever and bring them through it. Or you could even, you know, get them to bore themselves out of it. So get them to keep going over and over it till the point where they're going, you know, OK, enough is enough. I, I'm, I'm, I'm already tired of this. Or it could be from a more CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy approach. It's like, you know, if you keep exposure, exposing, exposure, exposing them to the same thing over and over again, eventually it ceases to have the same emotional charge that it had at the very, very beginning. But then once you do that, you can also tell yourself a different story about the trauma and what it means, right? Because oftentimes it's not the past that affects your future or that affects your present, right? Oftentimes... The, the, the problem with the future is the imagined future that we have. In other words, sometimes mm -hmm. it's our concepts of what the past means that is what's destroying our future, not the past itself. So it's not the event that happens. Oh, it's totally. how we interpret that event. So we say, the reason I can't speak in public is because uh, I tried to do it before and I was humiliated when I was a kid. And therefore, I'm never going to be able to do that. And so we become prisoners of our own past by telling ourselves a narrative or story that connects and says, because A happened, it means I can never do B. And that's uh, also something you would do with them. You help them to change that story where they recognize that doesn't have to be the way it is. And then they can tell themselves a new story, which allows them to be able to empower themselves. And so those are the two things. Change the emotional charge and then tell themselves a new story. Typically speaking, those would be two strategies to use when you're trying to help people to navigate their way through trauma. That's really good. Um, and with that, I want to take it a step further into relationships because 
you know, people hear this and they're like, okay, well, the chance of me being waterboarded are pretty slim. However, I have clients message me constantly about past trauma in relationships and now it's repeating itself to them, right? You know, and an example, I'll just use an example. A client messaged me and she said she's had, you know, every guy she's dated has been emotionally unavailable. And then this guy who she starts dating messages her and says, hey, I got some family stuff going on. I'm not, you know, like I'm not going to be available for the next couple weeks. And she's like, see, it's happening again, you know, and and then she's like, you know, and then she it's funny because she went down that road of all the reasons why he's a horrible person. You know what? He he didn't actually hold the door open for me, you know, and he he actually he said he was going to call me back that one time and he didn't. And now she's recreating this story of why he's this villain and, you know, the, just like every other guy, right? And it's, it's difficult in the moment because I can see what she's doing and I'm like, or he actually is having a family crisis and he needs some space and he's just putting a boundary up, you know? And she's like, yeah. and, you know, and we do this and it's, it's I, I love what Dr. Barrett said because she said, we need people you know, so important that we have people for body, uh, the body budgeting, but they also take so much from us. And I was like, yes, so much. And so I kind of want to go into this, like how, when it comes to relationships and that the stories that we begin to make up based on one thing and we begin to create, like, how can you trust your mind? Because then, you know, before, before I had to stop her or else she was going to be like, see, he's an abuser. I'm like, wow. Yeah. You know? I mean, look, this, this is the, I mean, in many ways is the million dollar question, right? In terms of relationships, because, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll just sort of um, go into overall sort of theory around this. So I, I've met people before and they've said, you know, I met one, 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 um, one uh, lady before who said um, that, you know, she dated a narcissist and she was used and she was a psychologist as well, but she was throwing the word narcissist around quite a lot, you know? And I mean, the reality is, if if you define narcissist as in someone who prioritizes themselves or is all about themselves, you could pretty much, you know, argue the overwhelming majority of people in the Western world are narcissists because we do tend to be more self-oriented than others oriented compared to, let's say, other cultures that tend to have a different value system. So, you know, they've done experiments in Japan, for example, in the States where they've said, I want you to draw, you, draw a picture of yourself and a picture of um, you know, um, uh, figure of yourself and then a figure of your uh, friends. And what they find is, is that in America, the majority of people draw a picture of themselves as the biggest figure, and then they draw, you know, satellites of their friends, right, to their, in different sizes. They do this in Japan, and the person in Japan, generally speaking, will draw themselves the same size or a little bit smaller than everybody else, and will draw themselves not in the middle, but as one of the satellites around, every, you know, and they're all sort of equal. Now, if you look at what that means, it means that we do have more of an absorption towards an individualistic perspective than a collectivist perspective from a cultural norm perspective. Why that matters in terms of what I'm saying is we then use the word narcissist if somebody isn't giving us the attention that we expect that they should give us. So we label that and all of a sudden, you know, if someone's a problem, they become a narcissist. Someone else, it's, it's like they're not emotionally unavailable. Now that brings the question, what do we mean by emotionally unavailable? Because we like to use these terms to be able to lock people off, right? right? 
Um, the labels. That's it. And the label itself serves us because it means if they're emotionally unavailable, they're the ones that messed up. Therefore, I'm okay. And the reality is, is that most of the time, the majority of people, I would even argue, that are, you know, struggling with relationships, including me, uh, we're messed up in some ways. And, and we have stuff going on. Uh, you know, like, um, you know, I, I think I learned this the hard way is that so often I was like relying on my gut and everyone's like praising the gut. It's all about your gut. Once you, you know, it's whatever you feel. And I learned not to trust my gut when it came to relationships. But the reason I did is because number one, it's hard to be able to distinguish the difference between the gut and your feelings. And, and number two, the feelings are often the byproduct of the negative patterns from the traumatic experiences you've had before, or even non-traumatic, but pretty messed up experiences. In other words, you've been cheated on. And that feeling of being cheated on makes you extra vigilant. That extra vigilance means that you no longer trust as much as you used to. That lack of trust that you have now, or the, the, the reluctance to trust people, now becomes a pattern. And now when somebody says something, because it happens to be similar to what your ex who cheated on you says, all of a sudden you start to go, oh, my gut says don't trust them. This is in inverted commas, a red flag. Now there mm. are red flags and there's red flags in terms of if you're clear about exactly what you, you know, do want to tolerate versus what you don't want to tolerate, there's certainly red flags. And, you know, I'd be the first person to recommend or advise to a friend of mine, whether they're, you know, whoever they are and whatever gender they are and whoever they're interested in, I'd be the first person to, you know, listen to what they have to say and to go, well, that seems to be, you know, that, that's not very promising or they don't seem to be respecting you enough or whatever. So I'd be the first person to be able to point that out. But nonetheless, so often we interpret anything and everything in the way in which uh, it represents what's happened before. Um, and we use these labels, we throw about these labels called, you know, they're toxic, uh, they're emotionally immature, they're emotionally unavailable. And by the way, they could well be, but we are not in a position to diagnose that when we do. Um, if I take my exes, one of the things that um, I always tried to do in the aftermath is no matter how bad I felt, I always tried to make sure that anytime I described it and anytime I thought about it, right, I was a lot more generous than a lot of my friends would have been. And the reason isn't because I was trying to be a good person. The reason is it always takes two. It's you for treating people the way you do, and it's them for letting them uh, letting you treat them that way, right? So I always tried to take responsibility, like some responsibility and, and preferably half of responsibility for any of the, the the results of anything. If 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 we got to a point that let's say, for example, someone cheated on me, then even though on on objective measures you could go, that's about her, or that's about this. In reality, it's also um, you know. That if if I if I was in a relationship with someone and if I just rely on them doing everything in a certain moral way, then that absolves me of anything, and it means that I'm just this helpless victim that tends to fall for all these people that tend to do this. But why is it that we get attracted? The, the problem, if you ask how many people talk about emotionally unavailable, you know, partners, well, what is the odds of you finding all of these different people? And I would argue that oftentimes we become attracted to people precisely because they're emotionally unavailable. Mm. And, that, and that could be for two reasons. Number one, it's because if we're with them and they're emotionally unavailable, it means we're safe because we kind of know that we don't have to let ourselves go. In other words, 
It's our own fear of intimacy, our own fear of connection with someone that allows us to be able to be attracted to someone who's either emotionally or physically unavailable. I know I had this pattern in the past where I was interested in people when they were unavailable. And, uh, and, and the more they weren't that interested, the more I was interested. Again, it was a safety thing, right? Or on the flip side, uh, if you're attracted to emotionally unavailable, it might be a case of, you know, well, I can change them or this is a challenge or it's more exciting as a result. Whereas when you meet someone who's emotionally available and in touch with their feelings, sometimes it's almost like too easy. It's almost like too, you know, let's say inverted commas, boring. Now, I'm not saying any of this is true for everybody or anything like that. What I'm simply pointing out is, is that oftentimes what we do is we use labels to try to describe what's going on for us. So it makes us feel better. And that's grand. But if we are to overcome that pattern that we have, we need to recognize it. We need to notice when we're positioning ourselves as the victim or when we're positioning ourselves as the villain. Because some other people think to themselves, I'm terrible with men or I'm terrible with women. I'm just no good. I'm no good in relationships. And that's problematic as well, because that can lead you to then be waiting for you to make those mistakes. In fact, it can lead you to self-sabotage. You can start to sabotage the relationships because you kind of expect to. Now, there's also attachment theory. There's people who have, you know, secure attachments, there's anxious and there's avoidant attachment styles. And, and basically, this is a lot of great work done um, on, uh, you know, from the, in the field of psychology on how we attach ourselves from early age. So some people have a secure attachment. They suggest about 50%, although I'd argue it might be less than that. I feel like then it's got, way less. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel it. It's just the research suggests it's around 50. And then the anxious is around 30%, I think. And then the um, avoidant is about 20%. But basically it is like this. It's like, I think the way they measured it at one point was they had like kids and the parents would leave um, and then we'll come back and they would see how the kid re responds. And some kids are like, cool, you know, see you later, ma, see you later, dad. They come back, it's all good. Other kids would be very anxious and upset. And other kids would like ignore or, you know, you know, be very sort of like, you know, ghost, not ghosting, but, you know, blanking and not giving any of the attention to the parent, almost like from an anger point of view. And so in, in later life, when we're in relationships, oftentimes these patterns can play out. Right. And when we're in a relationship, you know, if, if someone's texting you, if you're dating someone a, a, a few days and someone's texting you constantly, it indicates they're probably in the, you know, anxious type of attachment style. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. It, it is what it is. You know, um, I wouldn't even argue. I, I would argue I'm not even in the secure. I would say I'm probably more anxious or sometimes avoidant in it. And, and it's hard to admit that because you don't like the idea of it. But I think the only way for you to be able to handle the problems you have in relationships is to be able to recognize what tendencies you have, recognize and be honest with yourself about what you tend to do. Um, be honest with yourself about who you tend to be attracted to. Be honest with yourself about these things, because it's only when you're honest with yourself that you can start making changes. And so often people aren't. People deny it. People live in a world where they become the victims of all the bastards out there or all the bitches out there. That's what we do. We, we, we tell ourselves a narrative that, you know, I just can't find there's no good men left in the world. There's no good women left in the world. But that's our attempts to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And this then breaks down to the idea that we form our identity with regards to your relationship. And this is one really important thing we need to change. It doesn't matter whether or not your relationship works out in terms of your self-esteem or who you are. You are just as good as you 
could possibly be. And as you work on yourself, you could be even better. But your worth should never be questioned based upon another person. Because another person is not into you because they found out who you truly are, even if it feels like that. Another person's interested in you because of their own agenda, because their own feelings. They fall in love with you and they see all the great sides of you and they dismiss all the shitty sides of you. When people fall out of love, they start to associate with all the shitty parts of you and they start to disassociate with all the great parts of you. But that isn't a statement about your worth. When someone leaves you, when someone rejects you, that's not about you. That's about them, their experiences of you. And it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means for whatever reason, they've changed the way in which they feel. And it's the hardest thing in the world to deal with. Well, one of the hardest, but it's so, so difficult. But we, we need to remember in the darkest times like that, that just because they've rejected you, it doesn't mean anything about you. You're still just as incredible and just as silly and just as crazy and just as weird as you were before. It's not about you. And then when you remind yourself that, uh, it, 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 it gives you a little bit, a little bit of, of faith that you can, you know, move forward in your life and you don't need another human being to be happy. But when you build a better relationship with who you are, then you become a better potential partner for someone else. This whole thing of other half is not a good metaphor. We mm -hmm. don't need another half. You're a whole person. And if you find another whole person and the two of you will have fights, you'll be all over the place. Some days you'll, you know, want to strangle them. Other days you want to, uh, you know, do a, have an incredible time with them. But when you recognize that two whole people can come together and connect and feel that they make each other better, then it's wonderful. And that might not last forever. In fact, it definitely won't last forever. But if you're lucky enough for it to have it last until one of you passes, then, you know, it's special. It's, it's what we call the love of your life. If it doesn't, then it doesn't mean that you were, it doesn't mean there was anything wrong with you. And I think that's what people really need to hear is that you don't have to worry about positioning them as the villain or positioning them as, you know, the, the horrible human being with all these issues that they had, because it doesn't matter at the end of the day, the way they feel is the way they feel. And what, what you have to do is remind yourself of just how incredible you are. And that's, I think that's important for people to get and hear, because I don't think we always hear that. I think you kind of dismiss it when your friends say, you know, you're a great person, plenty of fish in the sea. And we don't even hear them because we're too busy thinking to ourselves. Yeah, but either I was, either we broke up because I was a mess. Right. Or they were the bastard or, or, or the bitch. Well, and, why, why is that? You know, like I have clients come to me that are like, can't get over that relationship five, 10 years ago. And it was like, but what's wrong with me? Why, why, you know? And like, it's like, and then I think about this book with the prediction. I'm like, is, is, did it not gather enough information? Like, you know, why is that? That's self-deprecating like what's wrong with me i need to find what's wrong with me because when i find out what's wrong with me i can fix it and then i be worthy for the next person but again, be it's it, it's because it's etched into the narrative of 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 how the world works look at every single story you have what what do you have in everything you watch on tv every news story right you have the hero and the villain it's always the same way every story has the goody and the baddie and we moralize everything we go around the world and we go that's right that's wrong now we live in a sort of a cancel culture when someone says this, oh, we're going to cancel them. And sometimes they deserve to be canceled because what they said is really messed up. But a lot of the times they, they say something and they don't deserve the vitriol that they get. They weren't meaning anything bad by it. And they, you know, either said it clumsily or they said something that really isn't that bad. But either way, there's a lot of people moralizing. And I think a large part of the 
problems we have, especially how easy it is to polarize society, is based upon saying there is a right way and a wrong way, and we're on the right side. And if you don't agree with us, you're on the uh, you're on the wrong side. So we're on the right side. If you don't agree with us, you're the other side. So the right and the left in the states. The, on the right, they say, you know, we believe that this is uh, America, and uh, these are the values of America, and this is what you need to do. On the left side, we believe this is the way you need to live. And if you're not agreeing with us, if, if you're on the right, if you're not agreeing with us, then you're uh, you're a liberal uh, and you're this and you're that and you're the other, right? You're a bleeding heart liberal and, and a lot worse words they use. The, those on the left that are on the extreme left will turn around and say, we believe this, this, this. And if you're not with us, then you're a racist and then you're right. this and you're that. The on, absolutes, on the right? The, 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 yeah. And then even the, the double binds. And then even the vax and the anti-vax, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, if you believe in the vaccine, uh, you know, if, if you're an anti-vaxxer and you see people who believe in the vaccine, oh, you don't care about freedom, you're a sheep, you're this, you're that, the other. And then people <laughs> with the vaccine talking to people who are anti-vax saying, you know, you're, you're an idiot, you don't believe in science, you're brainwashed by all of these YouTube. It's, it's just this extreme nature. And don't get me wrong, I stand on certain sides. So I have certain beliefs about, you know, vaccines and about you know politics right but the problem isn't having beliefs about it the problem is when we live in this right versus wrong you know yeah. uh two 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 wave uh two ways of thinking mentality you know yeah. you can't stay in the middle you can't uh you can't have nuanced thinking you can't be in the middle in on any issue because the right will push you to the left and the left will push you to the right the vax will push you to the anti-vax and the anti-vax will say that you're a vax. So wh wherever you go, it's always a two-sided system. So I, I have my beliefs, but I don't, I, I do my best to try to understand why people make the decisions they do. So when I think about my beliefs, let's say about vaccines, I try to understand the other side. I, I struggle to, but I do my best to do that because I don't believe just because they are a, a, of different beliefs than me, then that immediately makes them bad people. That they yeah. uh, that they you know um, uh, don't care about people's lives or don't care about people's freedom, depending on which market you want to go in. Uh, when people are pro you know pro choice versus pro life, once again, it, it's these are, are incendiary issues because of the nature of what we believe they're they're about. But this moralization happens in all aspects of our life, including dating. So something breaks up, and instead of like seeing you know the reason we broke up was because we drifted apart because. Uh, we realized that, you know, there were so many differences or somebody changed their feelings. We always have to have a reason. And that mm -hmm. reason is in this story of, you know, once upon a time, there was a, a great person called me and a villain called them. And uh, mm -hmm. that villain, you know, messed me over at the end. Or if you, if, if you, you know, fall out of the relationship saying, I'm useless, I'll never find anyone. Then once upon a time, there was this great hero, this beautiful woman, and she was everything. And then there was this Prince called me and uh, and I, 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 everything was going great. And then I messed everything up like I always do because that's what I do because I'm useless and I'm never gonna find anyone. So we either are the, like I said the last time, we're the victims of some other monstrosity also known as an ex or we're the villains that let that one get away, right? I mean, if you think even the term, let them get away, it's like, you know, it's like you kidnapped them and you let them get away, you, you know, where, 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 you know, where did they go to? So I just think that this is, these are the kinds of things that we tend to do. And once you know or recognize or let yourself be okay with the fact that you do it, then you've got a chance to change. That's why I'm quite, you know, 
open and honest about, you know, the way I think about my past relationships is because I see them and I don't want them to affect, you know, my, my relationship in my, in the present. I don't want that, those patterns. And sometimes they do. And I have to be very mindful of those because whenever I get that feeling that says, you know, red flag or good or this or that or the other, I know that that's a product of my past experiences and my interpretation of that and my insecurities and all that sort of stuff. I need to recognize that so I don't fall into the trap of saying this is the reality. It's just our reality I'm experiencing at this moment in time. Sorry, that was like one of the longest rants. I think. It's good. That, it's, so good. But it's funny because, but that's the thing is we, if we believe that is the reality, we'll, we will create it, right? You know? Yeah. And that's and, the thing. Because we, we then it. it's like, oh, you know, this, this client of mine, she's like, you know, and so she gave him time, this, this guy that she was talking to, she gave him a week and it was one day past a week. And she's like, see he's unavailable i'm like and you know and then she messaged him and was like where are you kind of and she started that goes into the anxious attachment but she started to go down that road of sabotage because she's like i've been here before i've seen this before i don't want to be in this again i don't want to be hurt again i'm not going to be with another narcissist abuser unemotional whatever the label is and so i am now going to shut down right or blow shit up and and exit stage left and, and, and look I, I just want to say like i know i know what i've said about you know everything on that but at the same time my heart goes out to her right because and i know as you as does yours because it's a horrible place to be it's a horrible place to be when when you when you meet somebody and you fall for them and you've got this you know idea of what you want with them and you see it as possible um, and then they start to, to, to move away from you. And, and uh, whatever reason that is, it's a temporary thing or it's a long-term thing, but it's, it's very scary. And so I'm not turning around trying to make it seem like yeah. wag my finger, this is what you need to do. I can't believe you're doing it. I do feel a lot of compassion um, towards anybody struggling. And, and you know, whenever someone does something crazy in love, I'm the first person to say, I get it. I get it because your brain is literally fucking firing off all sorts of crazy shit is happening yeah. in your brain. It's like, it, it's almost identical to, you know, OCD or even when you're, you know, on cocaine, your brain is very similar uh, than when, in, when you're in love with someone and or infatuated, let's say. And so it's really, really understandable why you feel the way you do. So it's not about beating yourself up for the fact that you're, you know, you're, you're over contacting them or you are messaging, you are being anxious. It's about recognizing this is my tendency. And if you can hold back and, and text less or try to, um, you know, be more communicate, communicate and be a bit more <laughs> understanding or or let them know, look, this is the way, you know, this is what, what my I've attachment done. style. Exactly. It, it then will hopefully, you know, if you're meeting, if, if you're with the right kind of person. But to your point then, there, Shireen, sometimes what happens is we get anxious and then we push people away. And then we end up proving ourselves correct because, you know, we we almost like lock them into this sort of relationship because we try so hard to hang on to it. It's like water. Best metaphor I've ever heard of it is like if you're trying to learn to swim, if you put force and you try really desperately hard to swim, you can't. You have to trust the water. You have yeah. to trust the water working with your body. you got to trust relationships and it's not always easy. Um, but you know, it's something to aspire to. It's certainly what I try to do. One last question. I, 
you know, cause it comes up with what we're talking about expectations, you know, and, and we could go, I'm sure you could go long into the social constructs too, around relationships and like, it just women, women are really hard on men. I don't know what men are. <laughs> I don't hear a lot of the flip side. I sometimes I do, but you know, women are like, well, did he like pick you up? Did he did like the checklists are insane sometimes. Like, you know, he doesn't text me during the day, but he needs to be, he needs to be really wealthy. And I said to somebody, I was like, we probably can't text you because he's working because you said you want him to be wealthy. Like, what do you want, honey? You want him to text you all day or you want, a, you know, a Maserati in, in the garage, like pick one. Um, yeah. And it comes back, you know, how do expectations, you know, fit into our brain? How, how does, how is that? Is that a predictive, a predictive mechanism? How is, why do we do that? Why? Why? So we, when we talk about expectations, uh, an expectation is a prediction that you've got a good sense of certainty about, right? Or uh, let's say, for example, in the context of this sort of stuff, it's like, you know, this is what things should be. So we create these should expectations. And the should expectation is, this is what a relationship should look like. And um, how do we know what that is? We talk to our friends, right? Or... You know, we watch TV or we look at reality shows or, you know, we look at Instagram and we see what um, relationships seem to look like. So we create these shoulds. This is the narrative. And that directs the story we tell ourselves about what this relationship is going to lead to. Now, the problem is, is that when we create these, let's say, should expectations, um, inevitably, it's not, you know, you're you're not going to... um, you're, you're, it, it's not going to work out that way, right? Um, when you meet somebody, you might expect them to have everything together, right? And have it all. But inevitably, they're going to let you down in some ways. And, and if they don't, I'd be, I'd be worried more than anything, right? Because, you know, if, if, so, if something's too good to be true, generally speaking, a lot of times it is. So when someone, when you meet someone for the first time, you have to ask yourself the question, what really matters? And um, for some people, money does really matter. And that's grand. For some people, they're like, you know, I just want to date a millionaire because they're not just thinking about a partner. They're thinking about a lifestyle. And I'm, I used to judge people for that. I don't judge people that, for that anymore because I think uh, at the end of the day, some guys and girls only want to date people who are really, really attractive, right? They only want to date people of six pack. They only like people have their preferences and they have their expectations. But expecting a person to be all things to all people and generally speaking having i've got a good lot of female friends as well as male friends that i would talk to about this sort of stuff i think when we go into relationships especially the older you get the more to a degree expectations you have for them but the problem is when you have those expectations also the older you get if the partner's also older they've also probably spent more time of their life living by themselves therefore they're used to certain things and so Um, I think we have to recognize that if we want to be able to be with someone, there is a level of knowing what expectations are like rules, like walkaways, like deal breakers, like if you're not this, if you don't respect me, if you don't treat me, you know, like you care about me, if you don't, if you're not thoughtful, then that should be, you know, uh, a deal breaker. 
and separating those from things that don't really matter at the end of the day. Like if he doesn't propose to me by June, by, you know, if he doesn't do this by this and the, the timelines. like Yeah. But, but, but again, people say awful, uh, an awful lot of shit as well. Right. <laughs> so, so I don't, you know, if someone says, if they don't propose by this date, I'm like, okay, let's see it happen. <laughs> most of the time people just bluff it. They say it. But at the end of the day, um, most people are just pretending like, I've seen so many examples of people on both sides, right? And they're not, they don't get treated well by their, their uh, partner and they stay. And I don't really, you know, I don't see as many examples of people that are, you know, having all these expectations that's broken. Once you're into a relationship, generally speaking, um, you will find excuses to stay with them. It's just too comfortable to stay with them versus break up. So most of the time when you do want to break up, it's because they've reached a certain threshold, but it's not because they aren't this or they aren't that or they aren't the other. I've seen a lot of cases where people just stay with their partners, even though their partners are, are you know, treating them quite badly. And in fact, a lot of people are attracted to people who aren't that nice to them. So you have a lot of people who are with like, you know, it's the whole stereotype of, you know, uh, women liking bastards or men liking women that aren't that nice. Right. And uh, it comes from the fact that oftentimes it's like when they act selfishly, when they act like they don't care about you, like even the, you know, the person I was talking to that talks about the narcissist, probably there's the self-absorption of the person they were inter interested in made them more attractive because we tend to be attracted to people who tend to be all about themselves, right? We tend to be attracted to people, sometimes even arrogance. You know, we hate it as a quality, but we kind of are attracted to it as well. And so what we have to do is recognize that people are full of shit in a lot of ways. People say all sorts of, oh, I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't do that. People say my highest quality in a guy is humor. And then they end up being with this guy who's like is, is you know, is, 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 it is, is dry as the desert. And, and you wonder, you know, well, how does that work? It works because we have these lofty ideals, but at the end of the day, we don't even fulfill our own expectations. There's a great book by Daniel Gilbert called Stumbling on Happiness, where he basically shows that we're never as miserable as we think an event will make us, and we're never as happy as we think an event will make us. So our own predictions about how happy or how miserable we're going to be in the future are not even accurate. So our own expectations of other people are not going to be accurate. And the only trouble that expectations gets you is they don't allow you to be open in those early stages with people. So it's not about you know long-term relationships that the expectations really have as big of an impact. It's more so if they're not over this uh, height. And, and again, I want to separate it because you're into whatever you're into. If height's real important to you, cool. But, um, well, there you go. So if height's really important to you, then it is what it is. Um, I, I know, you know, when, when I was, when I used to be on the dating sites, there was all sorts of things. Like if you're not over six foot, don't contact me. If you like Trump. Sorry, that was me. That was me. Oh, that over, over six, six five. By, by the way, it's six five and over. Over and six. I've never five. had a problem. I've never had a problem, Owen. Honestly, I set that standard, that expectation early. I've never had a problem. But go on. <laughs> there you go. But but again, it's it's what we have to do is recognize which of them are deal breakers. So yeah. if for you, the high thing is real important. Cool. Some other girl, it's going to be how much they make. Some other girl, it's going to be whether or not they're an outdoors person. Some other, other girl, it's going to be how they a six pack. Some other girl, it's going to be how well do they dress. Some other, uh, other girl, it's going to be where are they from. So depending on who it is, 
that's going to determine what their deal breaker is. But you have to recognize what yours is and, and not get caught up in the ones that aren't your deal breakers, not get caught up in they should be this because, you know, Sandra on fucking Instagram says that this is important. Well, Sandra doesn't fucking know your life. She doesn't know what you're experiencing. You have to live your life. You have to be real to yourself. Right. And that means, um, you know, letting people see that side of you. And, and that's the thing about authenticity as well is that we value authenticity massively and we need to be fully authentic and let people see the real version of us. But the real version of us is not just one person. It's a variety of people. And authenticity is sometimes like an excuse to let people uh, act as rude as they want to. Well, no, you need to be authentic with empathy and you need to let people realize you've more than one side to yourself. And when you express that, it, it means that you're letting the world see you. Um, as fully as you are. And the most important thing of all is that you love yourself and you love how you're coming across. And if you build a better relationship with you, then whenever you're in a relationship, um, if, if they don't gel with that, if you're dating them and they don't like the sides of you that you like, well, they're probably not for you. But this notion of expectations where we say they have to be this and they have to be that, well, fine for one or two things. You know, Again, if, if money is your thing, if height's your thing, it is what it is. But after that, when we get like all particular, we're almost sabotaging our own opportunity to potentially find someone. And again, look, these are just my thoughts. I don't know how right or wrong of them, uh, you know, they are, uh, but they're based upon, you know, having worked with a lot of different people in this, trying to figure out the mysteries that surround this, uh, you know, impossible, um, impossible experience called love. <laughs> um, I know you gotta, you gotta go soon. It's funny because I once had a mentor tell me that, you know, you'll never have any problems in relationships. If you constantly just focus on the good things, if you constantly just appreciate and, you know, you know, okay, he forgot to empty the dishwasher, but what are all the incredible things he or she did that day? Um, and- I like that. I think, I think, yeah, for sure. And know what the real fucked up behaviors are. <laughs> so right. know there's going to be some things that like, you know, he forgot to put the, the, the dishwasher grand, but if, you know, he forgot my birthday and he remembered his coworker Mary's birthday, then that's, you know, that, that might be some reason to be a little bit pissed off. Uh, he screamed at me in public. That might be a re so, so yes, 100% dismiss the small things, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we ignore it. It just means we don't give it more energy than it deserves. And we know, we, we know our worth, we know what we deserve, and we're, um, we're clear over what the deal breakers are. I think that's the real, if I was to say one thing with all the stuff I've been saying, I would say, get clear over what really matters to you. Get clear over what really matters to you in the relationship so that you know when they've crossed the line or when they're dangerously there. And, and you know when you're just being you know, a perfectionist and overly critical or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much more because you could look at intention versus action too, right? Like some people just don't have the skill set or the capability. That doesn't mean they're a villain, you know, you know. And, he, and, and, yeah. I mean, look. could have uh, just been forgetful, you know. Yeah. hundred percent. And look, it's also, like you said, the skillful stuff. Like I'm, I'm pretty absent-minded. You know, when I first uh, started dating my, my, my girlfriend, what, um, what happened was, uh, I wasn't always like aware, like sometimes I'd walk out of the house. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have looked in the mirror 
because I'm like not that aware of how I look. I'm not always like, you know, I'm oblivious to it. I don't notice shit like that. I, I'm very good in my area and field, but in a lot of areas I'm quite, you know, unaware and not very stylish or whatever. And, and that was, that's something important to her. So again, you know, I worked on it a bit, but she had to accept that she, she, she wasn't with somebody who was like fucking stylish. The most You're not wearing your Armani shoes at the door. That's that's what I'm saying. So here's your coach jacket, but that's it. But sorry, I just need to take those down. Um, (laughs) But, but the key is, is that she had to accept that, but I also had to work myself on it. Right. I had to work on, I, I didn't have to, but I chose to. I chose to say, you know what, uh, I, I would like that. Well. Yeah, it's important to her. And also, I think it would be good for me. And there's certain things that might be important. Uh, well, there's certain things that she wants that I don't want to do. And therefore, it's not going to happen. There's certain things that I want that she doesn't want to do. It's not going to happen. But if it's really important to one of us, then the other person will then choose, you know, is it something that I think would be worthwhile for me to do? And is, if it's important enough to them, and if it's not a big deal for me, that's what we do in relationships. You, you, you yeah. try to make an effort. But what I'm trying to say is it doesn't necessarily come naturally. So expecting everything to come naturally to everybody, I think, is, is absurd. Um, and if we look at why we fall in love with someone, the reason we do is exactly what makes them unique. That's why we fall in love. Not because they are perfect in this way or that way or because they dress perfect or even, even how much money they make or how tall they are. The reason we fall in love with someone is because of something unique that makes them different to anybody else. And it's just for you. Mm, I like that. That's really well said. Thank you for that. Wow. We've, we've been around uh, the block today. I appreciate it. And I loved your little authenticity uh, comment there because I did a post this morning or last night and uh, literally was talking about we need to stop saying that in, unless you're running around naked on Instagram that you're not being authentic. And, you know, if you wear makeup too, to bed that you're not being authentic like that may be authentic to you and there's different versions of you you know exactly exactly. i'm not in my pajamas right now that doesn't mean i'm not being authentic exactly exactly yeah no couldn't agree more if you were really authentic you wouldn't be wearing makeup do you know how many people i've had say that to me and i'm like stop like that's again but that comes down to the whole you should be doing this and if you're authentic you should be doing that and if you're this you should and honestly, I, I really think we, we, we should like just find a way of taking a holiday, taking a vacation from should. <laughs> Everyone seems to be telling you what you should do and you shouldn't do. And, you know, fine. If you want to stick to the Ten Commandments, if you're religious, then great. You know, uh, even the four agreements, you know, uh, would be a, a good you know, set of rules to follow. But this notion that everybody is going to tell you what they should and shouldn't do and you shouldn't say this word and that word, the other word. It's just exhausting. And I'm not saying there's not a need for certain things, right? Because we do have a problem with regards to minority groups being discriminated against. We do have a problem in terms of racism um, across the world. We do have those issues happening. We do need to do something. This whole notion where we jump on the bandwagon of every, like that, that example a few weeks ago where a celebrity said, we should stop calling aliens aliens because it's offensive. We should call them extraterrestrials. <laughs> You know, like this is, we're getting to the point of uh, absurd. Well, we hit absurdity a long time ago. What we need to do is, is chill out a little bit and recognize that to your point. That offends me, Owen. (laughs) But there you go. It's intention. And it's about not jumping to being offended for everything and then immediately going, 
you're wrong, you should be this, you should be that. It's everyone needs to give everyone else a break. We're all fucking muddling through. We've been through a hellish two years. It's been up and down. It's all is this stuff. People are arguing, people are fighting, things are polarized. The media are, are doing great because they're polarized and everyone. Social media is doing the same with the echo chambers. It's a oh. tough world to be in. And we're, and we're struggling with the you know depression and anxiety at record levels. So in this kind of world, what we need more than anything is to be nice and try to be kind to each other and try to understand we're all just muddling through. No one really knows. And we're all just, you know, seven and a half billion brains trying to predict what's happening next. And yeah, there's some psychopaths out there, but the overwhelming majority of people are good. They're trying to do their best and they're trying to do their best with the limited information going in through their senses and going through their body that they have and uh, holding that against people. Sometimes it's hard not to because people can infuriate you. They can impact your nervous system. But when you recognize at the end of the day, most people have someone in their life that they love. Most people are good. Most people just want to get on with their day and they have love in them and they have uh, beautiful qualities to them. When you recognize that, it makes the world a little bit easier to live in. That's what I think. That's beautifully said. Thank you for that, Owen. <laughs> that makes me laugh. Oh, that's funny. Oh, society culture humanity that's it it's funny these days all right well owen if people want to find more about you or connect with you or i'm sure read your book this, after this they're probably tired of me so uh, <laughs> if, if you're not tired of me then i've got my uh, my podcast changing yeah, that's right your podcast changing minds with Owen fitzpatrick so you can find that on spotify and on itunes and google play and all that stuff um i also have um uh, my, uh, my, uh, my website, ownfitzpatry.com. And, uh, and I also have like a couple of different like memberships and stuff like that. But it, what's your favorite book? What's your favorite book that you wrote? Uh, hard to say. Um, depends on what you want. I mean, I love conversations with Richard Bandler. That's, uh, you know, that was deep sort of philosophical type book with Richard. Um, I don't know. Charismatic edge is communication, that kind of thing. But probably my favorite book is the one I'm writing at the moment. So, oh, when is this coming out? Uh, well, I'll, I should have it finished in the, you know, sometime next year. Or so it'll be probably the end of next year. So it'll be a while. But in the meantime, my podcast will um will will keep things ticking over. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time. You've given me so much time today. I'm so appreciative of that. Um, and, uh, you know, you're welcome to come on my podcast any other time and talk about whatever you want to talk about. You want to talk about aliens. You can talk about that. <laughs> I, talk actually about... extraterrestrials. Shireen. Sorry. Extraterrestrials. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just been, it's been an honor to have you. So thank you so much. And, uh, I hope, I hope you do come back in the future and would love to have you on, especially when your book comes out, cause that's going to be incredible. So thank you so much today, um, everybody. Thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, you can find me at Intermind Performance and Shereen at uh, intermindperformance.com if you have any questions. But thanks so much. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Intermind Podcast. If you have any questions or want to know more about my Transform Your Mind, Transform Your Life packages, you can email me at shereen at 
You can find more life-changing content on my website, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Intermind Performance. If you like what I'm saying, please take a moment to leave a rating and a review and share this with a friend as knowledge is powerful. Oh, 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 oh